this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer by Kate Clifford Larson. Fannie Lou Hamer was born the 20th child in a family that had lived in the Mississippi Delta for generations and throughout the course of her life became the embodiment of protest, perseverance, and most of all, the potential for revolutionary change. Walk With Me by Kate Clifford Larson is the most complete biography of Fannie Lou Hamer ever written, drawing on recently declassified sources on both Hamer and the civil rights movement, including unredacted FBI and Department of Justice files, as well as interviews with civil rights activists conducted by the Smithsonian and the Library of Congress, and extensive conversations with Hamer's own family. Stirring, immersive, and authoritative, this informative work does justice to Fannie Lou Hamer's life, capturing in full the spirit and the voice that led the fight for freedom and equality in America at its critical moment. This contains new interviews and fresh archival material and is a comprehensive and clear biography for the general reader. So again, that is Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer by Kate Clifford Larson. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Ukara. We're recording on Thursday, February 10th. Hi, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's my answer every time is I'm like, how do I say, uh, tired and getting through in various fun ways? Um, yeah, you know, yeah, getting through. How are you? And every time you ask me that question, I think, how can I say something that's not about the weather? Because <laughs> that's what we do in the Midwest. When someone asks you how you are, you respond with, oh, great. How's the weather today? But it, it it was 40 degrees one day this week, and that was just truly magical. What a splendid day that was. It was a splendid day. It was, yes. <laughs> then it, like, snowed and rained all day today. So, you know, we we persist. That's uh, less splendid. But it is. anyway, I've, I feel like I am in a time reading-wise where I'm finding a lot of books I want to read, which is both good and bad because mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, no, not enough time. Lots of TV to also watch. So, yes. you know, how do you how do you balance it all? Yes. Have you been watching the Olympics? No. <laughs> Last <laughs> night I saw everyone freaking out about Nathan Chen. Nathan Chen. Yes. Nathan Chen, who uh, won the gold for the U.S. in yes. freestyle men's figure skating. Just men's figure skating. Just men's figure skating. I mean, that's impressive. He had his long program last night. Yes. Yeah, and he did like four quads or something. It was very impressive what yes. I heard about it. And I saw some clips of it. But mm-hmm. other than that, no, I'm watching uh, Drag Race UK versus the world. And that is Love my it. Olympics. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, my sister loves the Olympics, and I enjoy the Olympics, so we've been watching a lot of it. It's like 
mostly just like the stuff that's on like NBC primetime at night. Like we sit down and watch that until it gets late and then we both go to bed early because we're old people. But yeah, it's, I forgot how much the Winter Olympics is sports where like people can really seriously injure themselves because they're like going fast and jumping high on ice. Sometimes head first. It's terrifying. Yes. I, uh, my yes. workplace had a, an icebreaker that was like, what, you know, winter Olympic sport would you want to participate in? And I was like, curling. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> They're so scary. <laughs> there's like ski jumping and there's like different kinds of ski jumping. And then there's like skating and there's all these kinds of skating, but you're like, can, like fall and like cut yourself on somebody else's skates and short track speed skating and like I learned yesterday that the downhill skis are so like sharp on the edges that there's a like people can fall and then cut their own legs with their skis because they're so sharp nope I hate it they're like a demonstration where someone like cut vegetables with the side of a ski and I was like what I did not know that it's all terif- it's all terrifying yeah, they should really play that up. Like the Winter Olympics are like the hardcore, so friggin' dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. So anyway, that's been doing a lot of that. A lot of that. I wanted to follow up with something we talked about last last episode. I think we talked about how we we've been like slowing down a little bit, and you were talking about reading a lot of longer books. Mm-hmm. And I was inspired, and so I was like, "What is a really long book I have that I could try to read this year, so I could be cool like Alice?" And I found one. It is called "And the Band Played On: Politics, People, and the AIDS Epidemic" by Randy Schultz, and it is older. I think it came out in like the the 1990s, perhaps. But it is uh, a a really comprehensive look at the AIDS epidemic um, that I have heard is really amazing, and it's been on my shelves for a long time. I think that's a great one to pick. I mean, uh, it was very big. I looked it up. It came out in 1987. Thank you. Um, Randy Schultz was a San Francisco Chronicle journalist, so definitely up your alley. It is 630 pages long. Yeah, I just, I've, I had it like sitting on a desk and so I reached over and grabbed it. And yeah, it is 630 pages long. And it, it, it does not have as many end notes as one might expect for a 630 page book. Uh, the book goes all the way to page 605. So, wow. And the font is small. It is. So if I if I am able to do it, I I will be pretty impressed with myself. I mean, I believe in you. There was a I'm I'm still on Wikipedia. There was a nineteen ninety-three docudrama based on and the band played on that was on HBO starring Matthew Modine and Alan Alda. Oh, Lily Tomlin was in it. And Ian McKellen. Whoa. And Richard Gere. Oh my gosh. Wow. That is <laughs> That is very impressive. That's what we call a star-studded cast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that – I remember seeing the cover of that on like a VHS tape. Because I remember <laughs> I remember the Matthew Modine was in it, but I never knew what it was about as a child. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, you know, keep us updated on yeah. your progress. I am doing the audiobook of Team of Rivals. I am a third through it, I think. Nice. Lincoln just got nominated to the <laughs> at the Republican convention, which was very exciting. And <laughs> yeah, it's very, very long. It was like 30 something hours. And now I'm down to like 22 hours. I tried to read that and I couldn't. <laughs> I think if it, as a physical book, I think it would be extremely hard. 
But yeah. uh, I like the narrator a lot for the audiobook version. And fortunately, my wife is really into Lincoln and at some point was like, oh, I'm going to read about him. And so she got she got Team of Rivals because she didn't realize <laughs> how long it was. And then she just immediately was like, no. So it was in our, our audiobook library. Nice. But um, so I just picked it up there. But yeah. Nice. That's awesome. It's great. I'm going to have so many facts about Lincoln and his cabinet. Cannot wait. All right. With that, we'll uh, jump into our first sponsor. We are sponsored this week by Book Riot's TBR. If you've got reading goals, it's time to check out TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. With TBR, you tell our professional book nerds, we call them bibliologists, about your likes and dislikes, whether you want comfort or stretch reads, and of course, what your reading goals are. Then you sit back while they comb through your Goodreads account, if you have one, and handpick recommendations and must reads just for you. TBR offers plans to receive three hardcover books in the mail or three recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget, and the recommendations-only level is available worldwide. After each order, give your bibliologist feedback, update your request to stay in line with your reading goals and expanding horizons, and basically have your own personal book concierge. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. So this week for nonfiction the news, we have a couple of stories to talk about. Uh, the first one is from the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot of conversation about a uh, school board in Tennessee that voted to ban the book Mouse from its uh, curriculum. The uh, Mouse is part of a Holocaust unit that the school does. And the, the school board was concerned about some of the content of the book. They mentioned uh, nudity and language as they felt that was concerning for students. And so they voted to remove it from the curriculum. Um, Mouse, A Survivor's Tale is a 1986 graphic novel that recounts uh, the author Art Spiegelman's parents' experiences during the Holocaust when they were imprisoned in Auschwitz. The nudity part struck me as very strange because in the book, the Jews are depicted as mice and the Germans are cats and Polish people are depicted as pigs. So like... Is is there? <laughs> but yeah, I I have really struggled to talk about this one because on the one level, like it's just so dumb. But then on another, it's just like really insidious. And like finding the balance between those two things to really like talk about it has been very hard for me. I understand that. I Mouse was definitely on the the like my classroom bookshelves when I was in mm-hmm. uh, I, I probably fifth grade, and that's how I just like picked it up during like free period or yeah. something, and that's that's how I found it. And it definitely did a lot towards informing me about what happened during the Holocaust and how bad it was. And but like in a way that right is like pretty accessible for mm-hmm. a ten year old. Which is, you know, a lot of the point of Mouse. So the fact that they're saying it's not appropriate and should be taken away is upsetting to say the least. Yeah. So the article we'll link to is one from uh, Mother Jones that kind of summarizes what's going on. But then also – the journalist did a really excellent thing of going through the the minutes of this school board meeting to try and suss out like what the actual concerns of the school board uh, was. The the headline of the article is the inside story of the banning of mouse. It's dumber than you think, which is absolutely true. Like just the things that they pull he pulled out of the school board meeting, the reasons that they're using to try and ban the book are just it's just really absurd. But like this is not. There's like book banning has been a really big issue this year and it keeps popping up and it's happening a lot more and more. 
And it's it's something we need to be all paying, I think, more attention to because, like, once a book is banned, like, it feels like actions you can take are, like, donate the book or buy copies of it or something to try and, like, help boost it. But that doesn't really help the students that are being impacted by not having access to that material. And so I hope that at least one of the things that comes out of all these book bans is that more people are paying attention to what their local school board is doing and trying to really, like, stop these before they happen because – that's that's an important step, and it, it takes some work and some activism to do that, but makes it it can make a difference. Yeah, that's a good point. The I believe the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom has resources mm-hmm. on their website about you know like what to do if if there's a challenged book, and just sort of like either reporting it or who who you should talk to in your area. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and Kelly Jensen at Book Riot has done a bunch of really great articles talking about what you can do uh, if a local entity is trying to ban a book that, or your li- local library board or school board is trying to ban a book. And she did one this week about how to use the Freedom of Information Act to get information about book banning. So we'll link to both of those. They're really great resources for kind of some beginning steps and help to take because getting into bureaucracy like that can be really intimidating, but it's possible to do and it's important that citizens do it. Kelly's doing a lot of good work around all the book bans that are happening. Yeah, for sure. Kudos to Kelly for that. The second article is more lighthearted. It's one that I am excited about. So uh, they announced this week that Claire Foy is set to star in an adaptation of An Ugly Truth, which was a book that I read last year, um, An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination by Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. It was an incredible book looking at just like what a an insidious beast Facebook is and how little uh, leadership at the company seems to care about the effect that they're having on democracy. Uh, And so it sounds like HBO is going to make a limited series adaptation of the book. And Claire Foy is set to play Sheryl Sandberg, which I... Like, maybe wouldn't have picked if someone, like, told me, like, who would you cast as Sheryl Sandberg? But then when you see their faces next to each other, it's like, whoa, yeah, that's perfect. Huh. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't. I'll look that up because I wouldn't have thought of that either. Yeah, it's very, like, oh, wow, you, like, Gergit, that's going to be very uncanny to see <laughs> to see that. Um, but I I think it'll make a fascinating HBO limited series, um, just, like, what is going on there and why is it happening. So I'm excited about that. I love a good nonfiction adaptation. Oh, you know, when I think of Sheryl Sandberg, I think of Mindy St. Clair from The Good Place. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's... No, that's not what she looks like. I mean, it is kind of, but I I see the Claire Foy thing. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) we have that to look forward to in the future sometime. So nonfiction in the news. All right. Now we will uh, shift gears and talk about a new nonfiction that's coming out this week or recently that we're excited and want to tell you about. So um, my first pick is a memoir called Black American Refugee, Escaping the Narcissism of the American Dream by Tiffany Drayton. Comes out February 15th from Viking. So this is a memoir by a woman who um, Tiffany Drayton in the 1990s came with her siblings from Trinidad and Tobago to join their mother in New Jersey. Um, She had left them there a few years before to come to the United States to earn enough money to bring them there to try and give them a shot at the American dream. And so they live in New Jersey and it is it's really good for a while, but then they're kind of chasing this idea of the American dream. And so for them, a lot of that is about educational attainment. And so they sort of try to, like, New York gets to be too expensive. And so they move to Texas for a while where they're in a good neighborhood that then kind of goes downhill and it doesn't seem to be working there. And so they move to Florida and the back. So they hop around the country trying to chase this dream and just 
like can't make it work. And at each kind of of these stages when they move, Tiffany experiences racism and the effects of like the American system on black people and black families in different ways and starts to experience like how this like cannot just cannot work for their family. And so she eventually returns to Tobago and sort of has an epiphany that like, oh yeah, like we can't have this. Whiteness is the epitome of the American dream and we like can never have that. And what I really like about this one is she sets it up in the beginning as a book talking about like a narcissistic relationship and how there's a narcissism to the American dream. And so then each chapter is kind of moving through the different stages of a narcissistic relationship and talking about how that experiences in her life were like that. And then she does a really interesting and good job, I think, of bringing in bigger context for the experiences that she was having. So, you know, talking about how her mom had to work these like crazy long hours to try and like afford the housing they were in. Then she talks about redlining and housing discrimination and how that affects black families. Um, And so it's just, it's like a really fascinating memoir in the way that it's put together and the experiences that she's sharing and like the the perspective that she's bringing to this immigrant story. And I just, I think it's really cool and really interesting and very thought-provoking. So Black American Refugee, Escaping the Narcissism of the American Dream by Tiffany Drayton. Oh yeah, I really like, well, I'm really interested in her perspective, especially as this kind of like, mm-hmm. it's really hard to see your country with a not an objective lens, right? But like kind of from like from this like outsider, yeah. like, oh, what does it look like? I remember being doing like a study abroad, like a quick summer one, whatever. And I remember being in Europe and thinking about the US as like that country over there. And uh-huh. it was so jarring. Like even just that, like being geographically like not within this, you know, like place. Uh-huh. So having also this sort of like ability to view the problems as like not something that you just accept because you're like oh yeah this is just how it is Mm -hmm. that's really cool and just valuable yeah i think that's a a good summary of of what i liked about it yeah um i have a different pick (laughs) for the next one which i just okay there's a few reasons why i picked this and okay it is called woods queer all one word, Crafting a Sustainable Life in Rural Maine by Gretchen Legler. Uh, This is published by Trinity University Press. So, first of all, the cover of this is beautiful. Like, very, very pretty. Gretchen Legler decided to move to a farm... In rural Maine. Sorry, as a lesbian myself, there's just a lot of stereotypes here. (laughs) So with Gretchen's partner, Ruth, and this, you know, farm that they have, um, she is mainly focusing on this sort of like back to the land kind of lifestyle. And I think if you pick this up, you have to just know what you're in for, which is this kind of idea that, you know, technology is like sort of ruining our lives and all you know this like idea of like mass production and that if we kind of lived together in the woods <laughs> it would maybe be better and so if you go in being like okay that's the type of book i'm reading there are pen and ink illustrations throughout it talks about um how much how they like had to calculate how much firewood they would need for the winter which you just don't think about mm-hmm when you're living in a city and uh, they would barter with their neighbors, which honestly, I actually really love. And I, I wish that we could barter. And oh, and how they needed to figure out, you know, like carpentry and 
tracking and hunting wild game and how to do like animal husbandry, which is just fascinating. And of course, woodcutting because of the firewood thing. <laughs> so essentially, I thought this was like a really, I haven't seen a lot of books like this, especially not like queer women living in rural Maine and mm-hmm. <laughs> writing about their like rural lifestyle so uh i'm i'm just fascinated and again the cover is beautiful so that is woods queer crafting a sustainable life in rural maine by gretchen legler the thing i love about books like that is they while i'm reading them i find them very like calming usually and like soothing and i'm like oh yeah i should i should i could do this i could go like garden and blah 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 and all of those things and then i get done and i remember that like i hate gardening i am not good with nature i would be terrible if i had to chop wood like i, c- I could not do any of that um but like there's something very like romantic about the idea you know are you watching abbott elementary yes did you did you watch this week's episode? Yes, with where the, they garden. Had the garden. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, that was so cute. Listener, if you are not watching Abbott Elementary, you should be. Oh my um, gosh. This last week, two of the teachers in this public school in Philadelphia decided to start a garden to try to feed <laughs> the kids healthier food, but. There's this other teacher who didn't want to get involved, but he, like, secretly knew, like, how to garden really, really well because he grew up. His dad had a landscaping business. Oh, my gosh. And he, like, sneakily was, like, (laughs) fixing all the mistakes they were making with the garden. I just loved it. Yes, I would totally be those two people. Yeah. (laughs) Failing at the garden. So that's a great pick. I I feel like that's a, like, nice, calming, kind of charming thing to read when you need some, like, low-key is is my, my sense of it. Yeah. Love that. All right. My next pick is um, called The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for Broken System by Anna Grifty Opua Ajumea. And it comes out February 1st from St. Martin's Press. So this book is really, really interesting to me. So basically, it is a collection of short essays featuring Black scholars and experts across economics, education, health, climate, and technology. And so it basically is like... Black scholars and Black thinkers need to be more prominently part of our discourse and not just invited to, like, speak about diversity and diverse topics, but they should be really invited to be experts in all of these different areas where we don't traditionally get to hear from Black scholars. And then their perspectives can help bring about, like, radical change and, like, new ideas and, like, thinking about these topics that we have talked about and think about in one way and, like, bring them into a new direction. And it is just, it's fascinating. So in the the chat section about climate, they talk about intersectional environmentalism and how that can shape climate action. They have one about, um, called Stop All Lives Mattering, the Climate Crisis. And it's just this really fascinating look at how Black scholarship can have a different take on a lot of issues. And so it's the, all of the essays are super short, like less than five pages, but they have a ton of really interesting work cited. And so it's really fast to read through to just kind of like get a sense of these ideas. And it's one of those books that I think is going to make me want to like read deeper on other stuff and find more by all of the people that are featured in it. And so it's just, it's different than some, anything I've read recently. It's much more um, academic than anything I've read recently, but it's still pretty accessible and kind of a cool, different approach. So that is The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for Broken System by Anna Grifty Opukua Ajiman. Oh, that's very fun. Yeah. And I say fun as in I love an academic text. <laughs> <laughs> um, not the actual topic, which is 
serious. I should say it's not super academic and like there's like they have all the work cited, but like it's not like footnoted and everything. Like each essay is very readable, but like it's very clearly like they're using a lot of academic terms and like academic structures and stuff, but in an accessible way, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, no, that's the best. I also love and I've said this before, but I love an edited collection uh-huh. where it's kind of just basically functions as a survey where you get to yeah. explore a bunch of different authors and just see, you know, who you like the most. This is all coming from I took a Russian Eastern European studies class in college, which basically just functioned like that, but with professors. Because <laughs> they had like all these professors across the like those di- like that, I guess, discipline. Yeah. Um, come in and give a lecture and you could be like, oh, I want to take their class. <laughs> that is really fun. That's a cool idea. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure that was the purpose behind it, but I definitely ended up signing up for someone's class because of that. Anyway, uh, my next pick is Messy Roots, a graphic memoir of a Wuhanese American by Laura Gao. Laura Gao moved from Wuhan, China to Texas as a four-year-old. And basically it's about, you know, like assimilation going from, uh, as they say, riding water buffaloes and devouring tofu, which is fun, to moving to Texas and kind of figuring out how to, you know, deal with this jarring thing. I think even as a four-year-old, like four years starting to really get things Mm -hmm. on a certain level. Like I remember stuff from when I was four. And like especially that kind of change is just huge. And um, there's fun things. She references High School Musical, and she references this white rabbit candy, which apparently um, is evocative of, like, very specifically, like, an Asian childhood. Um, I have not tried white rabbit candy. It sounds great. But also, so all of these, like, specific things, which I absolutely love, but then also talking about how, like, she just wanted to, like, make the basketball team and not go to Chinese school and also sort of dealing with her queerness, which this got a starred review from Publishers Weekly. They called it a multidimensional, thoroughly entertaining account of growing into queer Asian American identity, which is awesome. And I just, I just love a graphic memoir. <laughs> They're so good. I'm always so impressed at someone who can both write their story and illustrate it, which is just so many skills right there. So again, that is Messy Roots, a graphic memoir of a Wuhanese American by Laura Gao. That one sounds really great. I love, I love, also love a good graphic memoir. They're, they're very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Part, in part because like the, the drawing style always feels like it's very connected to the way that the story is being told. And like the way that those two things play off each other, I think is really fun to like look at and think about. Oh, that's a good point. I'm going to start noticing that more. (laughs) All right. So my next pick is just a quick mention because I haven't gotten to read very much of it. And it's called Catch the Sparrow, A Search for a Sister on the Truth of Her Murder by Rachel Rear. And this is like a memoir, investigative true crime book of a young woman who is trying to unravel the mystery of her stepsister's disappearance. Um, Her mother and her stepfather got together several years after Rachel's stepsister, Stephanie, uh, disappeared. So Stephanie was kind of always this like presence in their lives where Rachel never really knew her, but they like many people would tell her that she looked a lot like Stephanie. And so it's kind of this mystery of her childhood and her adulthood that she is trying to figure out. And so it's a cold case um, that she in her, I think, 20s finally decides that she wants to like dig into. And so she does a lot of the like cold case kind of stuff and writes about 
that. And, you know, I like a good cold case true crime book that, like, tells you the story of a person you didn't know and stuff. So I'm really liking this one so far. I haven't gotten to read much, though. That is Catch the Sparrow, A Search for a Sister and the Truth of Her Murder by Rachel Rear. Oh, that wasn't on my radar. Thanks for mentioning that. You're welcome. And with that, let's talk about our second sponsor, which is Book Riot's other podcasts. If you love this show, you're bound to love many of our others. So check out our newest podcast, Adaptation Nation, for discussions of adaptations both beloved and new. Subscribe to Red or Dead for updates on the world of mysteries and thrillers, or download SFF Yeah for happenings and recommendations in sci-fi and fantasy. Don't miss When in Romance for updates on all things kissing books or Hey YA for excellent conversations about young adult lit, we've got a show for everyone. So go to bookriot.com slash listen for a full list of all our podcasts or just type in Book Riot in the search bar of your podcatcher of choice. It'll bring up the full stable. Your TBR and the podcast-shaped hole in your heart will be full. Happy listening. Excellent. So uh, our theme for this week's episode, uh, President's Day is coming up in a couple of weeks. And so we thought that it would be fun to do something adjacent to President's Day. Um, But we decided to talk about first ladies instead of presidents because that seemed like it would be more interesting. Uh, There are a lot of books about presidents and lots of people know them. So we wanted to talk books about first ladies instead. Anything to add? I'm just very excited about this particular topic. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. All right. So um, my first pick is called First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies by Kate Anderson Brower. So Kate Anderson Brower is a journalist, and she has done a lot of books related to, um, like, the White House and the world of the presidency. So... Her first one, I think, was called The Residence, which is a look at sort of the upstairs and downstairs areas of the White House and like how it functions as a, a, a home. And so then this book is about first ladies. And she looks at first ladies from Jackie Kennedy to Michelle Obama and Melania Trump. And so she talks about how the first lady needs to be a leader with like her own agenda. She needs to be a politician. She needs to be like both a wife and mother who operates under constant scrutiny of her parenting and like participation in her marriage. Um, and then she also has to like be responsible for all of these um, services and special events that are hosted at the White House. And so she, in the book, Brower draws on a lot of sources. Um, she talks to like resident staff. She talks to like social secretaries and like people who are staffers of first ladies and former first ladies, um, their friends, their political advisors, all that kind of stuff to really try and tell the story of the 10 people who have had their role since 1960. So it's just really really fun. She's a really great writer in the sense that she's great at telling stories and using those stories to kind of help tell bigger things about or use those stories to kind of support bigger arguments about like what the role of the first lady even is. And so she has some really like very like lovely, charming, warming stories, some tragic stories and like the roles that first ladies have had you know, in their friendships with others, um, their relationships with their husbands and how they impacted their husband's presidencies. And the book is a little older. And so it's before I think Melania Trump became the first lady. And so there's a little bit of like, looking forward to what her time might be. So, you know, it's older. So there's a little bit of, of datedness to some of that. But overall, I think it's really interesting, just kind of survey of the idea of first ladies in the modern presidential era. So First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies by Kate Anderson Brower. 
Oh, and see, there's another example of a survey. So fantastic. Um, My first pick for First Ladies is Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady by Susan Quinn. This is about Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok, who, okay, in 1932, when FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, became president, Eleanor Roosevelt, they had been married for some time. She was not really looking forward to being First Lady, but she had... They had sort of navigated their marriage and their separate personalities (laughs) in a way where she now kind of had this independent life. And one of the ways that she exercised this independence was falling into, let's say, a relationship with Associated Press reporter Lorena Hickok. So for over 30 years, they they were in a romantic relationship. They became confidants. They were professional advisors and caring friends. And this is despite extremely different backgrounds. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt was part of this very powerful New York, I believe, family, right? The Roosevelts are New York. And maybe it's New Jersey. Don't quote me on that. Anyway, <laughs> the East the East Coast. <laughs> she grew up in this powerful family from the East Coast. And Lorena Hickok grew up in South Dakota, uh, ran away from home, was uh, which was like abusive. She had worked as a servant. And then she became this extremely respected reporter at the AP, which is just really amazing, especially considering it was 1920s and 30s. So from that, um, she, you know, met Eleanor Roosevelt. They just like immediately were like fascinated by each other. And then for 13 years, Lorena Hickok had her own room at the White House next door to Eleanor Roosevelt, which is just bonkers because you just don't hear about that as a child. (laughs) When they're talking about presidential history, etc. Especially um, when I was growing up, hearing about FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. I think there were like rumors that I'd heard, but they were very quickly like dismissed. Uh-huh. And if you watch the Ken Burns documentary on the Roosevelts, there is nothing about it in there. Uh, I know because I watched it and was waiting for it and it never happened. Interesting. Yeah, it's really weird. But so this book is, I'm glad it exists, if only to really solidify, yes, this was a thing. And, you know, here's kind of like the actual background on it. Um, So again, that is Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady by Susan Quinn. That's awesome. I I don't think I knew that this was a real thing. Like I thought it was, there was a fiction book that came out a, a few years ago that was like a fictionalized version of their story. And I was like, oh, it's like speculative. Like they were very close friends, but this is speculating that it was more like I did not realize that that was true. I mean, obviously that fictionalized account was fiction, but that it was really based on something that was true. Yeah. Man, fascinating. The stuff you do not know that history does not teach us. Man. All right. My second pick is uh, called The Meaning of Michelle, 16 Writers on the Iconic First Lady and Our Journey Inspires Our Own by Veronica Chambers, which is a book that came out in 2018. And it is a collection of essays all about people's uh, responses and inspiration and admiration and questions about Michelle Obama. I think Michelle Obama is super cool. So obviously, I was really jazzed about this book. 
But what the book is really getting at is how her uh, time as First Lady really challenged ideas about what it means. The back, the book cover talks about what it means to be beautiful, to be strong, to be fashion conscious, to be healthy, to be first mom, to be a caretaker and hostess, and to be partnered to the most powerful man in the world. And so I, Michelle Obama is a really unique first lady in the sense of like how much of a career she had before her husband got into politics and what her tenure in the White House looked like and how she really forced people to reassess a lot of what we think about a first lady, even though she was in some ways like also a very traditional first lady and like did all of the like traditional first lady things just because of her race and her experiences that she brought is really different. And so this book is a bunch of different people um, writing essays about what, like, Michelle Obama meant to them. So there's Ava DuVernay, there's Brittany Cooper, there's Marcus Samuelson, Roxane Gay, uh, Philippa Sue has an essay. This book came out, I think, right around the time she was getting awards for Hamilton, and so her chapter is called The Best of Wives, The Best of Women. And just a bunch of different people sharing essays and thoughts on Michelle Obama, which I think is a really cool thing to do and touches on some really important questions about race and class, um, womanhood, marriage, all those kinds of different things through the lens of like what Michelle Obama means. So that is the meaning of Michelle. 16 writers on the iconic first lady and how her journey inspires our own by Veronica Chambers. Well, that sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> there are all these books that I don't know exist. I know, right? I was excited about this one. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad that there are, uh, let's say, podcasts to inform people <laughs> of books such as this. That's great. <laughs> okay, so my next book, I feel like it's not controversial. It's more kind of like I could I could understand someone being like, why? And I'm going to explain why. But <laughs> this is The Adams Women, Abigail and Louisa Adams, Their Sisters and Daughters by Paul C. Nagel. So... This book came out in 1987. Is that over 30 years ago? Yes. But, okay, it was reissued in 1999 in paperback. I own it because it's about women's history. (laughs) And basically, okay, I visited Quincy, Massachusetts for my 25th birthday because that's the birthplace of John Adams. And I was very obsessed with John Adams when I was in high school. (laughs) Anyway, so I was like, this is what I'm going to do for my 25th birthday. I'm going to go here. So if you go to Quincy, you can see his uh, childhood house. You can see the house that he and Abigail built, which is very disappointing. But then you can see Peacefield, which is the house that he and then his descendants lived in, uh, including his son, John Quincy. And it's really cool. But you can also see the place where he, Abigail, John Quincy Adams, and Louisa Adams are buried, which is underneath a church, which is now Unitarian. Do you need all this information? No. But (laughs) so if you go underneath and there's like these kind of like tombs and there are signs outside the tombs. And I remember even at 25, when what was the world at that time? So long ago. There were these signs, especially talking about Abigail and Louisa. And Louisa, it was basically like, you know, two like a a meek, you know, <laughs> subservient, gentle, devoted wife. Louis and I at the time I was like, that's not like super complimentary to her. <laughs> like And it was put there by the daughters of the American Revolution, of course. So since then I have learned a fair amount about Louisa Adams and she was a 
complicated, fascinating person like so many people are. And it just makes me so angry that they have this sign outside her tomb just like belying her actual self. Um, so I want to uplift biographies of her. That was my long-winded explanation for why I'm talking about this book, The Adams Women. So Paul C. Nagel talks about Abigail, her daughter Nabby, who, oh my gosh, had a mastectomy in the either the late 18th century or the early 19th century and it is it is described (gasps) and it is horrifying like they're meaning not necessarily in the book but it is there is an extant record (gasps) of how the operation went anyway to uh louisa catherine adams who is the louisa adams i was talking about and down to clover adams who was the wife of henry adams the grandson of john quincy So it's just like this dynasty of Adam's women and what their lives were actually like. Nabby was pushed by Abigail, who, Abigail, I was really into her also for a long time. I was like, John and Abigail Adams, so amazing. They actually seem like deeply unpleasant people. (laughs) The more I learn, the more I am disappointed. But... So Abigail pushed Nabby, her daughter, to marry this man who, like, was an alcoholic. She was living in, like, near poverty. Um, She ended up dying of cancer. It was just, like, she had this very depressing life. Louisa Adams was not happily married to John Quincy. Does this sound like an uplifting book? No. But it will give you greater context for the history of the first ladies, like Louisa Adams was a first lady and Abigail Adams. And then, you know, we have poor... Clover, uh, who no one has heard of before. But she's like the Aunt Peggy of the Adamses. Uh yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh if you you know want like a, a not too long, because it's like a pretty short book. You know, like, but a history of several people, which I also love, as we talked about in the past, instead of a dual biography, this is a I don't know, like five people. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, okay. So that is The Adams Women, Abigail and Louisa Adams, Their Sisters and Daughters by Paul C. Nagel. You know, that was a deep cut. And I, as you started, I was like, I wonder where she's going with this. I don't know. <laughs> and then you like brought it home and now I'm sold. And that does sound kind of fascinating. <laughs> so <laughs> you have converted a skeptic. Wow. In me. Amazing. Amazing. All right. So there are a few um, pretty wide-ranging books about various uh, historical and modern first ladies that you could pick up for President's Day uh, to sort of celebrate the holiday if that is something you're interested in doing. Uh, And so with that, we will wrap up uh, talking about the books we're reading right now. So uh, the book I just finished was called No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear by Kate Bowler. And this is a book about – Kate Bowler is a – a uh, Christian uh, academic and uh, at Duke University. Um, she's also written a couple of memoirs. Uh, she's also a pancreatic cancer survivor. And so this book is about her diagnosis with pancreatic cancer and her um, treatment and what she learned through that experience and kind of what she learns about being human kind of coming out of a pancreatic cancer diagnosis, which is in most situations is fatal. Um, but in her case, She's actually in remission now. And it was really, it was a good, a good book. I think maybe I'm a little like tapped out on like kind of grief books and books about like 
living life to the fullest and stuff because I, you know, I read 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman and I read How to Do Nothing by Jenny Offel, um, which I think touch on similar themes. I didn't love it as much as I expected to, but I think that was really mostly me and the like context of reading it than it is the book because her story is very compelling and she has some really, I think, concrete and, but also like thought provoking um, ideas about living based on her experiences. So mixed bag for me, but I think still a good book. No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear by Kate Bowler. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't think, I think I can read like one grief book a year. So I'm very impressed by your capacity for that. (laughs) I am, I'm reading a lot of books because again, uh, focusing, it's hard. But uh, one of them that I'm reading is Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke, uh, whose first name I think is pronounced Reiner because it's German, but I'm honestly not sure. Maybe it's Reiner. Um, in, in any case, his name was originally Rene, and a woman he had an affair with said that it was more masculine to <laughs> change his first name. Um, I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, but uh, I'm I'm two or three letters into a ten letter total in Letters to a Young Poet, and. One of my friends said that basically you should read it if you're in the mood to hear about or think about capitalized, you know, life, love, and death, and <laughs> all of that. So I figured why not? And it's it's interesting so far. I could understand being very into it in high school, but uh, as as an adult, it's it's still good. <laughs> That's my review of Rilke. In conclusion. Uh, it's been a long day. You can find us on social media at It's Alice Time and at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by the ever patient Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Jen. And if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. 